The following study is a Wednesday night lesson given by Pastor Brett Metter at Athey Creek Christian Fellowship. Isaiah is where we left off. Yes, it seems we're not hearing pages turn right now, but I'm assuming they're turning or scrolling as we speak. So uh, the book of Isaiah, we left off in the middle of chapter 7 in our study last week. Um, We kind of got sort of snagged at one of the more powerful passages of all Scripture, uh, where it says uh, there in verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Um, Such a famous verse that even we hear Linus from the Peanuts reading it on the Christmas, uh, you know, uh, Peanuts cartoon, you know, and... and, uh, and stuff like that. It's such a, a huge verse. Why is it so big? Well, we saw the context last week, and the context is interesting because if you recall, we had the King Ahaz here in verses 1 through uh, 13, where he was in real trouble, and, and we need to kind of get back up to speed about the trouble. You see, the northern tribes of Israel, Ephraim, as they're often called when they're uh, just all in one big group of the 10 northern tribes, they'll call them Ephraim or Israel. Um, they were sort of, you know, making war against the southern two tribes, which we'll call Judah, um, and it was the capital of there in Jerusalem. And, um, and they were uh, in trouble because the northern ten tribes, along with Syria, uh, and if you remember some of the names there in verse 4, Reason and the guy named uh, Ramalia, and those that were linked to the Syrians, um, they were enemies of Israel, uh, pardon me, of Judah and the king there in Ahaz. Now, Ahaz was a wicked, evil king and um, didn't do good stuff. He was actually kind of a disaster king, is what I call Ahaz, uh, for the, the, the southern tribes. But one of the things, if you recall last week, he was afraid because of the northern tribes, along with Reason and Romalia and the Syrians. And so what he did is he, we saw from, you know, the story of Second Kings chapter 16, Last week, the, it, it, we know the background because we know Second Kings 16, same time period. Um, and what he did is he went up north past the enemies and went to a place called Assyria. Don't be confused. There's the Syrians and then there's the Assyrians. The Syrians were bad, but the Assyrians were worse. They were um, a scary people. Um, and, um, and today we have Syria that's still a country, but the Assyrian people are largely assimilated by other countries now, and you don't see the Assyrians anymore. But back then, they were the greatest country, and they were on the rise. At the time of Isaiah prophesying to Ahaz and the people of, of uh, Judah there, um, Syria was on, Assyria was on the rise, and they would ultimately become the world power shortly after this story and really kind of conquer much of the known world. Um, and they were known to be particularly brutal and scary. So this king, Ahaz, we saw him go up to Assyria and talk to a dude named Tiglath-Pileser. Now, by the way, that name sounds kind of ominous. Uh, he was. He was an ominous dude, Tiglath-Pileser. Uh, and uh, and the, the king here of Judah says to Tiglath, he says, listen, we are your slaves. We'll be your slaves. Uh, and here's all the money we have. And he took, if you remember, the gold and the silver uh, vessels from the temple in Jerusalem and brought them up and gave them to tiglath Pileser and said, we're your slaves. Uh, just, just will you please fight for us and not let these men of, of Israel and also the men of uh, Ramalia and Syria and all that take us on. So Tiggy, tiglath Pileser says, sure, whatever. And so he kind of did protect them. But you know, when you ever make an alliance with the world and looking to uh, an evil empire like uh, Assyria to help you and give up your worship implements and all that, don't you think that's a bad idea? Um, it's manipulating and finagling. When the Lord is going to tell, you know, Ahaz, hey, I'm going to be with you guys. I'm not going to let Jerusalem fall to the hand of the Syrians and these, uh, the northern tribes. I'll protect you. And, and we, we left off last week where the Lord says, listen, you know, Ahaz, I'll, I'll show you a sign. Tell me what you want. I'll show you a sign that I'm going to protect you. And do you remember what Ahaz said to the Lord? He said, no, thanks. <laughs> I don't need a sign uh, because, you know what? Uh, I've, got a, I've got an alliance with Tiglath-Pileser. 
Um, and the Lord said last week, he said, yeah, okay, well, you don't want to sign? I'm going to give you a sign anyway. But it's not just going to be you, uh, Ahaz. He says, therefore, the Lord himself shall give you, and the word you there in the Hebrew is plural, speaking like um, you say what, like y'all, Texas? Um, pretty much everyone, the world, humanity, all together, he gets this massive sign. Uh, and here's the sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Um, so God says, okay, as you don't want a sign, I'm going to give you a sign. And here it is, a sign for all the world that someday the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords is going gonna, is gonna to come and his name shall be called Emmanuel. It's an amazing thing that God does here when uh, Ahaz is this evil, wicked, loser king. And yet the Lord says, ah, you don't want a sign. I'm still going to give you one of the most glorious signs of all. And you see Isaiah's gaze go past the local situation there all the way in through history to even uh, the end of the world. And when Christ comes and rules and reigns on the earth. Um, and so, you know, quite fascinating talking about the one who would be born of a virgin. And we know that goes all the way back to what we talked about last week of the Proto-Evangelium, Genesis 3.15, where it says that the seed of the woman, there's no seed of the woman, it's a virgin birth that's being referred to there. The seed of the woman will bring forth a child, and that child would end up crushing the head of the serpent, and yet the serpent would bruise the heel of this coming seed of the woman. It's an amazing scripture. It's the first mention of the gospel. That's why it's called the proto-first evangelium, the gospel message, tucked away there in Genesis 3.15. And this is a uh, reaffirmation that the Lord was going to use, a virgin uh, to give birth to the Messiah. Um, and we talked about that last week. But then the discussion kind of continues about that. It goes on in verse 15. And it says there in Isaiah seven fifteen, Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. <laughs> now, you say, what does that have to do with the Messiah? Well, that's interesting. Butter and honey. Now, some of you are thinking, I like honey and butter. Honey butter. Uh, Maybe you're thinking Thanksgiving or those rolls, you know, that mama used to make and put honey butter on there. Um, Well, mixing butter and honey was actually uh, something that they would use to survive. And and usually it was the poor people who had only honey and butter to live on. Um, It it was not an impressive thing. Uh, You weren't thinking some dainty treat or some roll with honey butter on it. It's that you didn't have meat to eat. You were, you, you were, uh, didn't have crops and what have you. You were just going on milk from the cow and um, honey from the bees and just trying to survive. It was like a low, it'd be like we, us saying, uh, top ramen shall he eat, you know? Uh, maybe some of you college students know about that when you lived on top ramen. That's kind of the idea here, that the Messiah, the one born of a virgin, would, would uh, not live in a fancy way. He'd be a normal person, Uh, maybe even on the more impoverished kind of level. That's what's being said here. Um, And and he's going to know how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Of course, the Messiah would choose good. He who uh, knew no sin uh, would become sin on the cross for for humanity. So that's kind of this mention here um, uh, in verse 15. uh, Speaks of his humanity uh, and eating something that wasn't flashy or... um, or fancy, just honey and butter. Well, verse 16, it says, For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, in other words, before he's born, uh, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. The land that thou abhorrest. Isn't it interesting that Ahaz is spoken of as abhorring the land that God gave to them? Uh, you think, what a horrible thing. Here, here God gives the children of Israel the land flowing with milk and honey, um, a land where he subdued their enemies, a land where they got a great prosperity. But why did they abhor the land? It's because of their own sin. Their own sin started to stink. And so they started hating their own land that God gave them. I wonder, could it be, if you're not careful, you might find yourself hating things that God's given you. I hate my car. Be careful. Is it the Lord who gave you that car? I hate my apartment or my house. Some of you might be saying that now that you've been sequestered (laughs) there in your house uh, under the quarantine of the COVID-19 virus now for a month. Um, Some of you are thinking, man, I hate my house. Hey, 
just be thankful you have a house. You know, over in Vanuatu, where Tad and Marna are missionaries, and we have a base there. It's an Athey Creek base. Uh, we, and it's, it's not a ministry, an organization outside of Athey Creek. We, we have a whole couple of churches that are in Vanuatu and what have you. Well, they had just, um, you know, a week ago, uh, a huge cyclone go through there, 145-mile-an-hour winds, and um, most of the homes of the people are just gone, destroyed. Um, all the houses on our base, except for one, uh, the roofs got blown off, and you can see the sky through the through the houses of our of our pastor. Uh, we have a couple great pastors, uh, Samuel and and Floyd, uh, two amazingly cool dudes that I love a lot. And um, and their houses, they were, they could see the blue sky after the hurricane because it, it just blew off. And and that's the way you know most of the people in Vanuatu right now are, are homeless. Um, so it's kind of funny, you know, as we were all being in our house stuck. I was thinking, well, at least we have a house. Um, that's why, you know, singing that song tonight, and everything give thanks. Um, you know, that's, that's the key. Oh, Lord, I thank you. We have so much to be thankful for. But isn't it interesting here, Ahaz abhors the land that God gave to him. It's the gift that God gave them. And that's the sign of an ungrateful, spoiled, rotten child of God who doesn't appreciate the things that God has given to them. You know, and we have to be careful. It's like that old thing you hear about the guy who's walking down the street and he complains that he has no shoes when he sees the guy that has no feet. Um, I think we have to be careful to remember we're hugely blessed and we have nothing to complain about. Uh, you know, and, and we should be thankful. God forbid we become evil Ahaz who abhors the land that God has given to them. But, but because of that, because they were abhorring the land, it says here in our text in chapter 7, it says that, um, that the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. Now, what's the both of the king thing? Remember, Israel was split into two. The northern tribes, Israel, the southern tribe, Judah. And the Lord is saying, there's coming a time before the Messiah is born. Remember, before he can speak or know good or evil. Um, before that happens, before the Messiah comes, both kings, north and south, will be gone. Um, and that, in fact, happened. You know, it would be, um, you know, 700, um, you know, B.C., where the northern tribes would be wiped out by the Assyrians, 586 B.C., where the southern two tribes of Judah would be taken by the Babylonians, and they would be stripped of their kings by the time Jesus the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. This prophecy right here in verse 16 came to pass exactly. And it's so sad because it didn't have to happen that way, but it's because of their rebellion, because of their sin, because they abhorred the, the, the land. The Lord says, your land will be forsaken of her kings, both kings. Just a prophecy that came to pass perfectly once again. Well, verse 17, he says, the Lord shall bring up upon, upon thee and upon thy people and upon thy father's house Days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they shall come and shall rest all of them in the desolate valleys and in the holes of the rocks and upon the thorns and upon all the bushes. Hmm. Now, you say, okay, Brett, um, what's this bees and flies and all this? Well, keep in mind, remember I told you at the beginning of our study of Isaiah that he uses very colorful um, language of the Hebrew language. Isaiah is quite flowery and quite poetic, and he uses all the literary forms of, of, of writing, including metaphor and simile and, and hyperbole and all that stuff. And, and, um, and so some, some of these things get a little tricky, and he goes through a little uh, session here that becomes difficult. And when you read it, you're like, what in the world is he talking about? Um, but we'll, we'll uh, do it our best to explain it. Um, so, you know, basically, um, you know, Ahaz aligned himself with the Assyrians. And, um, and the Lord is saying, guess what? Those same Assyrians that you're putting your trust in, they're going to come down like flies. And they're going to buzz around like bees. That's what he's saying when he says there in verse 18, it'll come to pass and that day the Lord shall hiss or whistle, whistle in astonishment. That's the idea when, when the word hiss is used in the Old Testament in this context. It's kind of like the Lord's going to, oh boy, whoa, Nelly, you know, kind of thing. Uh, it's going to be so bad. It's like, 
That's when it says the Lord shall hiss or when people will hiss when they walk by Israel and Jerusalem. That's a phrase in the Old Testament we come across quite often. It means to sort of be, uh, sort of sigh in astonishment or whistle in astonishment. And the Lord's gonna go, you know, uh, there's gonna be uh, Assyrians like flies. Uh, That is in the uttermost part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they shall come and shall rest all of them in the desolate valleys, valleys in the holes of the rocks and upon the thorns and upon the bushes. That's the idea here that the Assyrians are going to come and buzz around and end up wiping out the northern ten tribes altogether. Verse 20. In the same day shall the Lord uh, shave with a razor that is hired, namely by them beyond the river, by the king of Assyria the head, and the hair of the feet, and it shall also consume the beard. Huh? What? This, again, is something we miss. Uh, you know, God's going to get out a razor and shave everybody's heads and beards and even the, every hair off their foot. You say, well, that sounds like a good thing, um, you know, getting, getting a you know, shave and stuff. But you've got to remember to the person of the Bible days of this time, um, the idea of getting your beard shaved, it spoke of two main things, of your nobility and your uh, wisdom, uh, your authority, having a nice big old beard, authority, wisdom, and stuff like that. But if you had your beard shaved, you were like stripped of your reputation. You were uh, disgraced. Um, do you remember those guys that got their beards and uh, halfway cut off there in the story that da- of when David was king? And those guys cut their beards and cut the backs of their robes off so their rear ends were sticking out of their clothes. Remember that story? It's a Bible story. Um, those, those guys were in total disgrace and they weren't bummed about their clothes being a hole in the back as much as they were bummed that their beards were half shaved. And you remember David said, go and hang out you know, in, in Jericho until your beards grow back and then you can come back to Jerusalem. But all that to say, it's something we don't even understand how uh, disgraceful this, this imagery would have been, that the Lord's gonna get out a razor and shave them. In other words, he's gonna cause the people, because of their sin, He's going to cause them to be in total disgrace. That's the idea of verse 20. So bees and flies, like soldiers, are going to be buzzing around their land. They're going to be in disgrace. All that said, verse 21. And it shall come to pass in that day that a man shall nourish a young cow and two sheep. And it shall come to pass for the abundance of milk that they shall give. He shall eat butter for butter and honey shall everyone eat that is left in the land. Again, this is an image of, of poverty. There's no beef cows. There's just a dairy cow and two sheep. And so they're going to have just a little bit of butter and honey. Uh, and that's God saying there's going to be famine um, and all that. It's not a good thing. It's not a good imagery here. Well, verse 23, And it shall come to pass in that day that every place shall be... Um, where there are a thousand vines and a thousand silverlings, that it shall be for briars and thorns. With arrows and with bows shall men come thither, because all the land shall become briars and thorns. And on the hills that shall be digged with the mattock, there shall not come thither the fear of the briars and thorns, but it shall be for the sending forth of oxen and for the treading of lesser cattle." Um, the, the idea here is things are going to be really bad. Uh, again, this is imagery and language that's hard for us to get our brains here in uh, 2020 to be thinking about what this imagery means and what have you. But the idea is it's going to be kind of brutal. All, all the fields that should be being farmed and picked with the, you know, the pickaxe or the mattock, um, and it should be, uh, you know, weed-free. It's going to have briars and thorns, and there's going to be cattle trouncing through wild, unhealthy cattle, and also soldiers with their bows and arrows, and men will just stomp through the land. That's the idea. Desolation. And by the way, Israel did become that place. I hope you understand that. It's hard for us to even imagine, you know, but um, I always refer, if you want to know what Israel looked like even a hundred years ago, one of the things you should do is check out um, Mark Twain's writings on his travels to Israel. Mark Twain spent about a year there, you know, over a hundred years ago, Mark Twain was there and he said, there's, it's the most desolate place he's ever seen on the planet, Israel. 
not a weed even to be found. And he said once in a while, every, every few months, he'd see a Bedouin. Um, it was a desolate, deserted place. You can see, uh, you know, drawings from artists of Jerusalem. Uh, and it was just like this desolate little, little town a hundred years ago uh, that really wasn't th- flourishing. And it's kind of an amazing thing. The reason it's so amazing is because the land of Israel has been brought back to life which is a fulfillment of prophecy. The prophecy here and also in Ezekiel that the, the land of Israel would become desolate and barren. But toward the last days, the, the Lord would revive the land of Israel. It would come back to life. Isn't it interesting now, the Jews have made um, Israel one of the most prosperous, fruitful places, in, for sure, in all the Middle East. Um, they're, they're, they're bringing forth so much fruit and vegetables. They're the, one of the top suppliers of fruit and vegetables for the whole uh, area of Europe. They, they supply fruit and vegetables. It's, it's an amazing thing to see what God has done in fulfilling prophecy that way. And that's just the beginning of what the Bible says Israel would we'd see. So when you see the land where the fig tree starts to blossom in Israel, uh, that's a sign of the times. We're, we're in those times. By the way, I hope you recognize you and I, we're living in exciting days. Um, you know, we could have lived back in a day like 500 years ago when Israel wasn't even a nation and Bible prophecy was really hard to discern because there's all these prophecies about Israel and Israel didn't even exist as a nation and people thought, oh, it must all be figurative and mean nothing. But you and I, we're living in a day where Israel's blossoming, the world hates the Jews and wants to destroy Israel, a lot of the people. Um, the battle of Armageddon is set. The battle of Gog and Magog is set, uh, ready to roll. It could happen tomorrow, and it wouldn't take much to get that going. All the players are in place. All the pieces are there, just poised. Do you understand that? On the front page of the news today, I saw this. Um, cash is going extinct. Uh, we're going to a cashless system because of the COVID-19 virus. And I talked uh, on Palm Sunday about the prophecies about the various things about the mark and, and how uh, possible and how likely it is now in our culture to have something of identification, of immunization, and also of the economy where a person could buy or sell. It's all right there. We're living in the most interesting days to be as a Christian. And frankly, uh, I would have thought to be this far into it, I would have thought we'd be getting much more persecution than we even are right now. Uh, to be as far into it as we are right now. So it's kind of an interesting day. Here we are able to still worship the Lord and, and uh, what have you. We can't meet together in buildings. That's kind of last days sort of, sort of stuff right there. But hopefully we'll get that back. That's my prayer that we get to meet here again, hopefully in a few weeks, who knows. Um, but but it, interesting time to be alive. This is, in fact, these last verses uh, that we just read sort of remind me of verses from the tribulation where it talks about how people will end up, you know, um, perilous times. You know, in Second Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, kind of talks about the second coming and the days it's going to be like. And, and this sort of reminds me of that. And we'll see more of this from Isaiah, uh, talking about the, those difficult days where Israel becomes barren in a wasteland. Ezekiel's the one, by the way, in his prophecy, when we get there, we're going to see more about the detail of the uh, you know, the diaspora, the scattering of the Jews all over the planet, Israel becoming a barren wasteland, and then the regathering of his people, one of the greatest fulfillments of prophecy. And like that one, uh, it was Zinzendorf who said, um, Count von Zinzendorf, I think was his name. He's the one who was, the, the atheist said, give us proof for God's existence. And he said two words. He said, the Jews. And I was thinking, man, that's brilliant. There really is perhaps no greater evidence of God's existence than the Jews. Because everything God said would happen to the nation Israel has happened to the very detail. From the time of Abraham all the way through to the current day, everything has come exactly as God has said it would. And massive detail. Uh, that the Jews would lose their Hebrew language. It would become an extinct language, kind of like Latin is sort of not a language anybody speaks anymore. It's an academic language that people still sort of employ, but it's not a real language. That, that was Hebrew. Hebrew was forgotten. The Bible says that there would be a restoring of the Hebrew language in the last days. And guess what? Back when the Jews, the Zionists, uh, came back to Jerusalem and Israel back in the 1700s and, and in, into the 1800s, it was... Um, a guy by the name of Ben Yehuda. 
Ben Huda? No, Ben Yahuda. There's a street called Ben Yehuda Street where you can shop. Uh, we do shopping at night there on Ben Yehuda Street. But Ben Yehuda was the dude that sat at his dinner table as a you know um, uh, Jew who moved back to Israel to uh, be a part of the Zionist movement. And he sat there at the dinner table and he told his family, we now from this day forward will not speak our native tongue from our former land. We shall speak the language of Hebrew. And he's the guy who started that and really uh, made Hebrew become the, the language of Israel today. If you go to Israel today, everybody's speaking Hebrew. Um, and uh, it's really something, a lost language. There's no other time in the world that's happened. Um, and yet the Bible said it would happen. Coincidence? No. God wins. We're living in some of the most interesting times. And, and you know, you could read through these prophecies of Isaiah and go, oh yeah, whatever, yawn, uh, cows and milk and cheese and all this stuff. But when you, when you read between the lines and see what the Lord's saying and predicting and saying is, is going to happen and, and, and all that uh, from, from how they're going to eat to even Emmanuel, born of a virgin, these details have come to pass exactingly. And I don't know about you, but I wonder if we've just kind of as a church fall, have been falling into this sleepy sort of uh, apathy of like, yeah, the prophecy, it's all happened, whatever. But no, we're living in exciting times. Look up right now. The day of our redemption draweth nigh. The, the coming of the Lord could be soon. It could be tonight. It could be tomorrow. We should be watching and waiting and ready. Don't be a sleepy Christian who said, oh, the Lord of delays is coming. That's the evil servant of Matthew 24. Um, the, the wise and faithful servant is watching and waiting and busy about the business of the master. Um, read the end of Matthew 24 when Jesus talked about the end of the world. So as we read these little prophecies and all these details, I hope that it gets you excited about the truth of God's word. It's just true. And we're living in the days that, um, man, there's just, there's just every sign of the Lord's soon coming. Uh, to me, that's exciting. Well, that's chapter 7. Chapter 8, um, uh, we now see this, that Syria is becoming the, um, Assyria, I should say, is becoming the uh, uh, dominant world empire more than ever by chapter 8, Assyria. The, remember the, the group that uh, Ahaz made that goofy deal with? Here's all the temple treasures and we're your slaves. Now we'll serve you as long as you protect us. Well, the Assyrians are getting more and more powerful. And now we pick it up in chapter 8, verse 1. Moreover, the Lord said unto me, Take thee, he's speaking to Isaiah, of course, take thee a great roll. Sounds delicious. Um, are we talking Thanksgiving roll with honey butter? No. Uh, when it says, Take thee a great roll, a great scroll is, is a better translation there. And write in it with a man's pen concerning Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. Um, thank you very much. <laughs> There's, there's the longest name in the Bible, by the way. Did you know that? Maher Shalal Hashbaz. If you're pregnant or expecting a, a child, maybe you could use this as a great Bible name for your, your uh, son. Uh, Maher Shalal uh, Hashbaz. Um, now, we'll talk about what it means here in a second. But write this name on a big scroll uh, and so that everybody can see it. Verse 2, And I took unto me faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of uh, Jever uh, Echiah. And I went unto the prophetess. Now who's the prophetess? Isaiah's wife. Um, He's the prophet. She's the prophetess as the wife of Isaiah. And she conceived and bare a son. Then said the Lord unto me, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Um, uh, For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. So what's this all about? This is the Lord giving Isaiah a word for Judah and Israel, a timetable of how long it's going to be before the Assyrians come and wipe out the northern ten tribes. How long will it be? Well, um, uh, the Lord kind of does this thing. He says, okay, write a name on a piece of paper. Okay, write the name, Mahir Shalal HaHashbaz. Um, and um, that name, your wife's going to get pregnant. You're going to give that son that name. And before he's able to say, mommy or daddy, 
that's when the Assyrians are going to come and wipe out the northern ten tribes. There's a little timeline for you. And do you see the picturesque language? We're talking a baby, and it's like, um, it's almost like the name of his child is uh, a declaration. That's the, the interesting thing. For you that are taking notes, Mahir Shalal Hashbaz, it means plunder speedeth and the booty hasteth. Huh? What are you talking about booty for here? Well, it's a Bible name for plunder. Uh, like uh, the stuff you get after war when you wipe out a nation and you get to take all the stuff. Um, and that's, that's what this name means. Mahir Shalal Hashbaz means plunder speeds and the booty hasteth. In other words, wars are coming and there's going to be plunder and booty uh, taken. Uh, that's the idea there. I know that uh, we live in a corrupt time and people are thinking about different things. But that's what this means. It means taking spoil from someone. And the idea is that, that that's like, uh, if you would, the Lord wants him to open up this huge scroll, write Mahir Shalal Hashbaz, which means plunder is coming and spoil is going to be taken. And it's going to be a road sign, like a big, like a, you know, the big signs out by the freeway, you know, big uh, advertisement saying Mahir Shalal Hashbaz, plunder's coming and spoil's going to be taken. <laughs> and so you're going to give birth to a little dude, name him plunder's coming and spoil's going to be taken. In other words, you're going to give birth, Isaiah and Mrs. Isaiah, to a little road, road sign called Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. Now, this would have been a term that the Jews were familiar with. It was a term that was used, by the way, to talk about when they would go to war. It's a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit like the Muslims when they blow up something uh, that they shouldn't be blowing up. They say, whoa, 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 all that stuff. They say that because they're saying, our God is greater. That is, uh, you know, Allah is greater than what? Greater than what? Than Jehovah. That's what they're saying. I hope you know that. They're not just saying God is great. That's what people that don't know what they're talking about say. They're saying our God is greater, greater than the God of the Christians, greater than the God of the Jews. That's what they're saying when they say Allahu Akbar. The Jews, when they went to battle, they would use this name that Isaiah was going to give to his son, Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. That's what they would say. Plunder and spoil is going to be ours is what they're saying. And they would yell that as they would go into battle. But in this case, the Lord is saying, write it down on a sign, a billboard, um, and you're going to give birth to a little billboard, and he's going to be a son walking around with that name, reminding the children of Israel, this is going to happen to you, the ten northern tribes, and it's going to be the Assyrians who will wipe you out. Are you guys with me on this? I hope you're sticking with me on this, because it's kind of an interesting uh, imagery that Isaiah is giving to the people of Israel. And that's what you have to do with the book of Isaiah, is realize it's all about these word pictures and um, images and examples and illustrations of what's going to happen to them. And we're going to see tonight that Isaiah's children, all of them, will have names that are little billboards reminding Israel of their own problems uh, and warnings and what have you. We'll see that if we get to it tonight. So um, name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz and before the, the child can yell out, Mommy, Daddy, uh, the, the Syria, um, Assyria, will be wiping out, uh, you know, Damascus, Samaria, which was parts of northern tribes, and Syria. They're going to be wiped out by the Assyrians. Um, so that's, that's the deal. And by the way, this wouldn't be Ahaz doing this. This would be the Lord doing all this. The Lord says, I'm going to use Assyria to do this, uh, to wipe out those northern tribes. Now, you might say, well, good for Ahaz. At least he's safe because Samaria is the northern tribes. Ephraim and all that, that's what's being predicted here is the northern 10 tribes will be wiped out, but not necessarily Judah. He goes on in verse 5 and says, the Lord spake unto me again to Isaiah, saying, for as much as this people refuseth the waters of Shiloh, that go softly, and rejoice in reason and Ramalia's son. Now therefore, behold, the Lord bringeth up upon them the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria and all his glory, and he shall come up over all his channels and go over all his banks, and he shall pass through Judah. And he shall overflow and go over, and he shall reach even to the neck. And the stretching out of his wings shall he fill the breadth of thy land, O Emmanuel. 
Okay, so what's going on here? Well, there's, there's, there's two bodies of water spoken of here. There's the pool and the little river creek, if you would, brook of Siloa, Shiloa. Um, in, the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, the word is Shiloam, the pool of Siloam. And uh, in John chapter 9, you have the story of Jesus, you know, making mud and spit and putting on the blind guy's eyes, if you recall. And he said, now go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, when we go to Israel, I love bringing our group to Hezekiah's tunnel. And, you know, it starts there at the Gihon Spring. Water comes bubbling out of the ground and goes kind of across ancient Jerusalem underground. Hezekiah dug an underground tunnel. If you remember the story of the Rabshaka, the trash taka, and all that stuff, Hezekiah builds a tunnel. And it's there today. You can walk through the tunnel that Hezekiah made um, thousands of years ago. Isn't that amazing? And you can see the chisel marks uh, in the wall of the Hezekiah's men. Like, it's so cool to see the Bible come to life. And it just amazes me that people try to act like none of the Bible's true and all these stories never really happened. When everything archaeological matches up with what the Bible says, it's, it's so dishonest of so-called scholarship. Just go to Israel. You'll see all these amazing places where all this stuff actually happened. So the pool of Siloam uh, is right there at the end of that Hezekiah's tunnel. It came out and bubbled into this, this beautiful little pool in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's at the top of a mountain, so there's no great river near it or around it. Uh, in fact, really, Israel has one river, and it's the Jordan River, but Jerusalem's way up on the top of a mountain, and Jordan's way down in the valley. Uh, and, um, and so Jerusalem doesn't have a big source of water, but it's got this peaceful little bubbling brook coming out of the mountain. Uh, and the Pool of Siloam, there's still water bubbling there today. That's amazing. Um, but all that to say, it seems that the Lord is saying, you guys, you can either choose the, the Pool of Siloam, this, this little peaceful pool, or you're going to have this big raging river from somewhere. Where? Well, these Assyrians. What river would they be referring to? Again, this is Isaiah using flowery, picturesque language. He's sort of equating, you Jews have your little pool that's peaceful and nice, and that's the one God wants you to use. But there's also this huge raging river called Euphrates, the Euphrates River. And so you've got a choice. You can either have the Pool of Siloam or you can have the Euphrates. Uh, which one are you going to choose? But he says, if you choose the Euphrates, the Euphrates is going to flood over and the men of Assyria will flood outside of its channels into your land. It's almost like he's, he's talking about the flood of the soldiers flooding. And, and do you see the language here? The language is he'll flood even uh, to the neck. What's the neck? I'm going to say that's the, the border walls of Jerusalem. Because um, it's true, the Assyrians would pretty much choke off right up to Jerusalem. Now, the Assyrians wouldn't wipe out Jerusalem. That'd be the Babylonians much later. But it, this, this came to pass. The, the Assyrians did flood all over that land, and they did come to the neck, almost choking off you know, the people of Jerusalem and of Judah. But they didn't completely destroy them. So this came to pass, stretching out his wings and filling the breadth of thy land. Um, and that's, that's what actually happened. Um, this came to pass. So again, it's a little tricky with this colorful language to discern what actually is happening. But that's the idea. The Assyrians are the river. And the Lord says, you can trust me and the little pool of Siloam that's not so impressive, but it's just beautiful and peaceful. Or you can go to the Assyrians, but they're going to choke you off right up to the neck and it's going to be dangerous. They're going to fill your land. You see, I see a real lesson here for you and for me. And that is, you and I have the same choice. We can choose to go with the Lord and put our trust in him. And it might seem quaint and insignificant. And it might even seem sort of elementary to be putting our trust in the pool of the Lord, the pool of Siloam. Uh, just say, we're going to put our trust here. And we're, we don't need a big, raging, fancy river. We just need the pool of the Lord. And the Lord says, you can take Siloam, the pool of peace, or you can go with this raging river that's going to go in a flood. I, I liken it to people that try to manipulate and, uh, you know, finagle things that they want, things that they hope for, instead of putting their trust in the Lord and resting and waiting and being still. Have you ever tried to make something happen? And you did it in your own strength and you did it in a big way only to find out the Lord wanted you to be still and drink from the pool of Siloam. 
See, that's the problem. Ahaz made a deal with the Assyrians, and he went with Euphrates River. He should have stuck with the Pool of Siloam. Um, Sometimes doing what the Lord asks us to do is less impressive, maybe even seemingly less um, um, exciting, uh, and and, um, maybe even kind of docile and quiet and insignificant. But it is interesting that the scriptures say, be still and know that I am the Lord. Um, some people are trying to make stuff happen. And, uh, you know, they, they, they feel lonely, so they try to find a mate. And so they beat the bushes, looking around, trying to find a mate. I say beat the bushes. When Adam uh, found his beautiful bride there in the first wedding ceremony of the Garden of Eden, what was Adam doing? Was he on eHarmony? Was he at the bar going, hey, baby, haven't I seen you somewhere before? Is that what uh, Adam was doing? No. Adam was in a deep sleep. <laughs> And the Lord brought the woman to him. I love the story of Isaac and Rebekah. You know, Isaac was there meditating out in the field. And suddenly the Bible says Rebekah rides up on a camel. And she, first mention of smoking in the Bible says she lit off her camel. Uh, no, that, that wasn't smoking. That was getting off the camel. Um, but that was this beautiful bringing together of this beautiful couple in the Bible. And it wasn't, you know, Isaac running around. Adam wasn't beating the bushes looking for his wife. He was asleep and the Lord provided. I'm just saying, you know, we try to make stuff happen. And and whenever we do that, oftentimes we find ourselves flooded to the neck, wondering if we're going to survive. That's that's what happens here. The Lord wanted them to trust his provision, the pool of Siloam, if you would. And they wanted to trust the Assyrian army. And it was like the giant, mighty Euphrates River. Good lesson for us to be still and to know that he is the Lord. Verse 9. Associate yourselves or, um, you know, make, make an uproar is another way of putting it. I think newer translations put it that way. Make an uproar, verse 9, O ye people, and you shall be broken in pieces and give ear all ye of far countries. Gird yourselves and you shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves and you shall be broken in pieces. Now, why does the Bible repeat itself? Whenever the Bible repeats itself, it's because it's an exclamation point. It's an emphasis. Um, And so what is he saying? Give ear, all you far countries. Listen, gird yourselves. You can get ready for battle, but you're going to be broken in pieces. What, huh? Gird yourselves and you're going to be broken in pieces. It says it twice. The Lord is saying, you can gird yourself to your blue in the face, but you're going to be broken in pieces. And some people kind of feel like they can protect themselves apart from God and sort of be the ones that get away with sin and get away with, you know, what, that's the problem with these people. They were doing all kinds of evil stuff and they thought they could get away from it, uh, God and, and get away with their sin and their idol worship and all their stuff. And the Lord says, nope, you can gird yourself to the tooth, uh, but you're going to be wiped out. You're going to be cut into pieces. And uh, so he, he emphasizes that in verse 9. Verse 10, take counsel together or conspire together is another way the languages put it in verse 10, and it shall come to nothing, to not. Speak the word, and it shall not stand, for God is with us. Um, you know, uh, God will do it, uh, so let him do it, is the idea here. Now, um, it's interesting because we still think that Emmanuel needs our help. And uh, that's the idea here, is the Lord says, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Uh, you can conspire together and it'll come to nothing. You can come up with your plans, it'll come to nothing, verse 10. But speak the word and it, and it shall not stand, um, for God is with us. For verse 11, for the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, say ye not, a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall stay. A confederacy, neither uh, fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Isaiah is saying, you know, don't make a, an alliance. Just let the Lord deal with this. Don't make an alliance. Don't, don't say, a confederacy, we'll, we'll align ourselves with, um, you know, th- these Assyrians. The Lord saying, don't do that. A good portion of the book of Isaiah is warning against making alliances with the world instead of putting the trust in the Lord. Um, don't say confederacy. Um, so they, it's, it's this classic thing where Ahaz and the people of Judah are thinking they need to help the Lord along, that he needs our help. It reminds me of Romans chapter 5, 
verses 6 through 8. Let me read it to you. It says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Man, we were helpless. One of the most uh, misquoted things in the Bible, God helps those who help themselves. And um, I understand there's a, there's a certain truth to that statement, but it's not in the Bible. That's not a biblical statement. People that think it is. I heard it quoted by somebody the other day. The Bible says, God helps those who help themselves. No, it doesn't. doesn't say that. But actually, the opposite is true. God helps those who cannot help themselves. And, and if you try to help yourself, you're going to mess it up. But just let God and especially when it comes to salvation. You see, these people were afraid of being destroyed. And God says, don't worry, I will take care of it. Don't finagle, don't manipulate, I will take care of you. Put your trust in me. And yet they finagled and tried to align themselves with the Assyrians and it ended up up to their necks into trouble. I think there's people that do that today uh, where we're trying to manipulate and finagle when the Lord's saying, be still, let me deal with it. And they say, a confederacy. Nope. The Lord says, just stick with me. Don't align yourself with these other nations. In fact, he goes on in verse 13 of chapter 8. He says, sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Interesting words. Um, First of all, quiz time. What does the word sanctify mean? Yes, you're right. Set apart. (laughs) Uh, Set apart. Sanctify the Lord. It says, sanctify the Lord of hosts. In other words, pull him out from the rest of your stupid ideas and your finagling and your manipulating. Set him apart. The Lord alone is the one who's going to deal with this. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear. Better to fear him than to fear men. See, Ahaz is living in the fear of man. And and remember how we've done lessons on this in previous studies? You will either be living in the fear of men or you will be living in the fear of God. That's the question. Who do you fear? Are you more worried about what everybody else thinks about you or are you more concerned about what God is actually thinking about you? That's the question you have to ask yourself. Um, And uh, the fear of man is a snare or hook in the nose. We read in the Proverbs um, it's, it's a, a pitfall for people to have fear of men. Oh, I'm so afraid. What are they going to think if I do this? Or what are they going to think if I do that? And it's a pitfall. It's a snare. It's a hook in the nose that'll drag you off into captivity. And here, Isaiah is telling them this massive truth, man. Sanctify the Lord. Don't mix this stuff up. Sanctify the Lord. Let him be your help or your fear and let him be your dread. It's better to have a healthy fear of the Lord. This is how we should think. Uh, mark this in your notes. First uh, Peter Chapter 3, verse 15 says this. It says, But sanctify the Lord your God in your hearts. Same language of Isaiah, only in the New Testament by Peter. Sanctify the Lord your God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Similar theme, only in this case, Peter's saying, Sanctify the Lord and be ready to tell people why you have hope. And it says here, um, you know, that you give that lesson with meekness and with fear. Um, hum, humility is kind of part of that picture there. Man, we need to sanctify the Lord, set the Lord apart, and let people know it's the Lord that we're looking to. It's the Lord that we're putting our trust in, and it's the Lord. We're a God-fearing kind of people. And so Peter is speaking the words really similar to that of Isaiah chapter 8, verse, verse 13. So you got to sanctify the Lord. And then verse 14, he goes on. And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin, or literally a trap, um, and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and shall be broken and be snared and be taken. Well, which, which one is it, Brett? Is, the, is he the Lord of our hope or is he the Lord of our stumbling and our, our, our snare? Which one is he? Well, it depends on who you are. Um, that's the thing. Are you one who the Lord is a rock of offense and a rock of stumbling? 
Um, by the way, the Bible is full of this imagery of the rock being a good rock or a scary rock, a rock of solidity and foundation or a rock of crushing and, and crumbling. What do you mean, Brett? Well, let me give you some examples. Um, maybe one that you might think of is Zechariah chapter 12. Listen, this is the last days Zechariah is talking about, and he's speaking of Jerusalem in the last days. That, I believe, is today. What, what does it say here? In Zechariah 12, verse 2, it says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling to all people round about when they shall be in siege, both in Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people that burden themselves with it. They shall be cut into pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. What's this prophecy about? In the last days, Jerusalem would be a burdensome stone that no one could lift. And if they try to lift it, they're going to be broken up. It's going to mess them up. That's why I get a little nervous when our presidents through the decades have said, we're going to be the one to solve the Arab-Israeli you know, problem, and we're going to lift the Jerusalem burdensome stone. No, you're not, unless you're the Antichrist, because <laughs> the Antichrist is going to come and seemingly fix the problem. Um, and lift that burden of stone, but ultimately it's going to be his total doom and demise, the Bible says. So even in the prophetic picture, this idea of the, the burdensome stone, but when it comes to you and God, it's even there. In fact, uh, maybe you recall in Matthew chapter 21, uh, verse 42. Listen to what Jesus said about this. Same kind of language of Isaiah chapter uh, 8. When Jesus says here in... Um, in uh, Matthew 21, 42, he says, Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected is the same become the head of the corner. That's from Psalm 118, 22. Uh, Jesus is just quoting Old Testament scriptures here. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Listen, and whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Question, would you rather be ground to powder or just broken? <laughs> That's the option. It says, he who shall fall on the stone shall be broken. See, this, this is a good one. And whosoever shall let the stone fall on, they'll be ground to powder. You and I need to be the person who's broken before the Lord. You'll either be broken before him or you'll be ground to powder by him. It's a choice that a person makes when they choose to believe and accept Christ. When you become a believer, you have to be broken and you have to say, I'm a sinner and repent and be broken before him. And man, then he becomes your solid rock that you can stand on. It's a rock of surety, a rock of comfort and blessing and protection when you're broken before him. But Jesus says, but be careful lest you be the person who's going to be ground to powder by the rock of offense. And he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 8. You'll see in your margin in Matthew chapter 21, verse 44, you'll see Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, marked there, because Jesus is referring to the same thing we're reading here in Isaiah chapter 8, that he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Um, man, I hope, uh, um, I hope you understand that no matter who you are, it's going to be true. It's true for the north or the south, Israel or Judah, Syria, Assyria, Portlanders, Americans. It's all true. You're either broken before him or you'll be uh, pulverized, pounded by him. And it's your choice. Well, I don't know if I like a God that's going to pulverize people. Remember, the Lord says, I would that none should perish, that everyone would come to repentance. The Lord's heart is that everybody be saved. But if you really want to be stubborn and you want to rebel against God and do your own thing, then the Lord says, good luck with that, but you will be ground to powder. Um, and uh, whether you like it or not, well, I don't know if I like that. It doesn't matter. Um, I, I would just recommend be broke, broken. Um, the Lord is near to them that have a broken and contrite spirit, the scriptures declare. So it's up to you who you're going to be. And, and Isaiah is kind of talking about that same thing. Um, he, and he says, verse 15, many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and snared and be taken. Isaiah is prophesying both practically in his day for those people at that time 
but he's also prophesying for us in our day. It's true all the same today. Well, he goes on in verse 16 of chapter 8. He says, Bind up the testimony and seal the law among my disciples. Now he's changing gears, talking about Isaiah's got disciples, by the way. People are like being discipled by him, teaching them. He says, uh, verse 17, And I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, which dwells in Mount Zion. Uh, do you guys remember the name of the first child of, uh, of Isaiah? Um, if you were with us earlier, we, we learned his name there in Isaiah chapter 5, Sheer Jashub, um, which means the remnant shall return. So his first child was the remnant shall return. And do you remember the name of the second child that we looked at tonight? Mahir Shalal Hashbaz, which means uh, spoil is coming. So Isaiah says, my kids are signs. They're, they're billboards to remind Israel of truth. That's what he's saying here. Um, the, the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, which dwells on Mount Zion. And those names tell us what their signs were. Mahir Shalal Hashbaz was spoil is coming, uh, booty, uh, prizes and gifts for the enemies. If you're not careful, watch out. And then also, uh, Shair Jashuv, uh, the remnant shall return. Well, verse 19, and when they shall say unto you, seek unto them that have familiar spirits and to wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? What are they doing? Peeping and muttering? Yeah. Who's the peepers and mutterers? mutterers? Um, those that seek familiar spirits. Now, this is a way of saying uh, necromancy. There's, there's people in those days and today that seek the dead and try to hear the dead. And, you know, um, uh, it's funny because we have sort of cartoonized some of the things that they believed in in those days. And we see it as something sort of different. It's a little bit like when you watch the Harry Potter movies and you see wizards and necromancy and all that stuff. And I know some Christians make a huge deal out of that. It's evil and Satan and, you know, you got to run from that and all that. And I get that and, and all that. But, but here's the thing. Um, in Bible times, they actually believed that people were seeking wizardry. And if you're doing that, you should cease and desist. Um, if you're teaching your kids to become wizards and witches, that's evil and that's wrong. Um, and that's what the children of Israel were doing. They were seeking those things. Now, we have things kind of like that today uh, that people make light of, Ouija boards and seeking spirits and psychics and palm reading and tarot cards and uh, horoscopes and all that stuff. I guess something like 16 million Americans believe in horoscopes and, and they consult them and make decisions based on their horoscope. I mean, um, that's stuff that people believe. Now, you say, well, Brett, is there power in those things? I think there's power in evil. And, um, you know, evil uh, does do miracles. Just remember, we talked about this last week. Remember Moses in Egypt as he did the miraculous plagues of Egypt? And the magicians and sorcerers of Egypt, Janus and Jambres, did the same exact things. They're able to duplicate miracles and and uh, mimic those things. Um, one thing they always did is made things worse. Remember, remember Moses sent the flag, plague of flies and Janus said, hey, we can do that. And they brought more flies. Uh, uh, we have a plague of frogs. Oh, we can make more frogs. They made more frogs. Oh, uh, water's turning to blood. Hey, the little bit of water we have left, we could turn it into blood too. The, every time Janus and Jambres did something, they made matters worse for Egypt. I thought that was kind of funny. But the, the point is that evil does have certain power. And while we've cartoonized that evil, um, I think we should be careful as Christians not to be consulting or playing around with evil things. And, um, and it's tricky because uh, if you're watching a Harry Potter movie, are you consulting evil? Well, I don't think people are actually doing that. They're not saying we're going to check with wizardry and all that. Um, is it just entertainment? Maybe. And if you feel convicted on that, man, don't watch it. But I'm not as concerned about a, a person watching the movie as much as actually doing that stuff. That's, that's where it's bad. And, and if you get all mad at me for saying that, there's a million things that are way worse than Harry Potter that kids are watching today that have sexual in, innuendo, things that kids are really going to get involved with. 
Uh, I've never met a kid that's become a wizard or a warlock or a witch from watching Harry Potter. Maybe it's happened, I don't know, but I've never met somebody like that. But I've watched people watch teenage movies and kids' movies and cartoons and see wicked imagery that's become part of who they are, and that's what concerns me most. Satan's subtle. Um, And I'm not as worried about some of those more overt things as much as some of the subtle things the enemy uses. But in this day, God's telling these people, listen, um, you go to those people that are consulting familiar spirits, these wizards that peep and mutter, uh, should not a people seek unto their God? Don't seek them. Seek God. Why are you seeking dead people when you can seek living people? That's that's the reasoning here in verse 19 for the, the, the living to the dead. Why would you even do that? Now, by the way, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9, it says this. This is a reminder of the children of Israel. It says, when you are coming to your land, which the Lord God gives you, thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those other nations. There shall not be found among you them that maketh his son or daughter to pass through fire. That's Moloch. Or, to, uh, or those that use div- divination or an observer of times, which is our, um, uh, astrology. Don't do that. Um, or an enchanter or a witch or a charmer or a consulter of familiar spirits, um, uh, a wizard or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them from before thee. Thou shalt be perfect or upright with the Lord thy God. So we as Christians should not take part in those uh, evil practices. And, and uh, that's something for you to think about as we live in a day where there's all kinds of evil things being practiced. But the Lord says, if you do that, it's not going to help you. In fact, he finishes with this, verse 20. In chapter 8 of Isaiah, verse 20, it says, To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Would you mark that? Verse 20, look to the law, is what he's saying, and to the testimony, which is the word. Look to the word. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Man, I see that all over the place. There are people that have so-called wisdom, but they don't have the word, and there's no light in them. There's counselors out there that don't counsel biblical counsel, but Freudian counsel. And if there's no word in them, there's no light in them. And they might seem to help. They might seem to do better, have answers and all this, but the truth is there's no light in them. And so there's continued problems, continued struggles. Um, Man, we need the word. That's where the light is. That's where the reality of help really is. So I've, I've got that marked in my Bible. If they're using their words, but not using the word, there's no light in them. In verse 21, and they shall pass through it, hardly bestead and hungry. And it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward. And they shall look unto the earth and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. What a wonderful way to end our study tonight. <laughs> People shaking their puny little fists at God saying, we hate you and you, you've made us to starve. And, and uh, it says here, they're, they're um, looking to the earth and behold trouble and darkness, dimness, anguish, and they shall be driven into darkness. Why is this? It's because they've forsaken the light of the word of God. They've forsaken the Lord. They've done their own thing and gone their own way, done that which is right in their own eyes. And they're calling evil good and they're calling good evil. And it's the same thing that people largely are doing today. The behavior of the men of Isaiah's time is very much like the behavior of the people of our time. We need to be a people that are of the word, people of the light. We need to be talking to each other about the word, not about our opinions or our fancies or the things we learned in college apart from the word as much as we need to say, let's see what the Bible says about these things Um, because that's where the light is. And if you don't walk in the light, you're walking in darkness and then eventually you're like, where are you, God? And that's that's what these people are saying. And the Jews got to that place. And what's sad, even though God is restoring Israel and bringing them back, there's still a large group of the population of Israel that's saying, where are you, God? Even though there's signs that the Lord is mercifully bringing his people back together. Don't be the person that's wandering around in darkness. Look to the light. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 
Um, it's the light of the scripture that gives us hope and help. And so we'll end right there. Um, it's almost like a tribulation period scripture that we just ended with, where the people are going to be hiding in the caves saying, uh, you know, let us flee from the wrath of the Lamb. It's like that's what happens to these people. That's like a precursor, a foreshadow of what's going to come during the tribulation period, people who walked in darkness. If you're a person of the light walking in the word today, I believe the thing that's going to save us is the rapture of the church. We'll be taken up out of here to be with the Lord. And then the tribulation is going to come. And that's where men will be like these men of that day in the darkness, shaking their fists at God. We see that in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. So a good reminder, walk in the light. That's the key, walking in the light of the word. And you did that tonight by studying Isaiah chapter 7 and 8. Tonight we're seeing the light of God's word. And that's good time spent. Well done. Uh, Let's pray together. And so tonight, Lord, as we've opened up the word, I pray that there'd be illumination, that the light and the life that you offer, uh, Lord, that we would sanctify you out from all the other things of this world, the powers so-called and the stuff that we tend to put our trust in. Lord, we want to sanctify you. As it says here, sanctify the Lord. Lord, we want to set you apart from all the other little goofy things that we look to and put our trust in. For you're the one who's living and powerful. You're the one that's the solid rock that we can put our feet upon. And you're the one who has the light of life. So we look to you. We put our trust in you. And I pray blessing on the people who are tuning in tonight, studying the scripture. May it bring forth good fruit. And I pray you'd bless each family, each person, each home um, tonight as we've taken this time to study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, you've been sitting for a long time. Let's stand together. To take advantage of our media ministry, we encourage you to visit us anytime at athecreek.com, where we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download.